Great to be back. I want to begin this morning by asking a question. Do you like when things don't go the way you want? Do you like when you can't do anything about it? So what do you do when you can't do anything about it? This morning, we are beginning a new series on the book of Daniel. And in some ways, in some ways, Daniel answers this kind of life situation when things go the way you don't like it. And there's not much you can do about it. What do you do when you can't do much about what's going on in your life? Open your scriptures to the book of Daniel and keep your scriptures there open. Uh, we're going to go through this book. Uh, today is going to be an overview. Now, our children know much about the book of Daniel. Children, can I get your attention for a second? I know you all like to color through the service, and we're so glad you're here, you're here in the service. We want you to be here. But I want to get your attention for just a moment. Children, what is the book of Daniel about? Daniel. Daniel. Yes, and I'm sure if I were to ask you to give me your three most popular, well-known stories of the book of Daniel, you would be able to spit them out just like that, right? Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel and his friends asked to bow before a big statue and get being, being thrown in a furnace, right? Daniel being asked to come and speak to the king who had a big party and who had a, a hand right on the wall. The book of Daniel. Our children know the stories. In some way, this sermon series will be so easy because you know the stories. But that's what's going to make it also difficult. You already know the stories. You already know what these messages will be about. Be like Daniel. Right? Well, here's where I may deflate your balloon of excitement. This morning, the book of Daniel is not so much about Daniel. I know, children. I know. The book of Daniel is not so much about Daniel as it is about the God of Daniel. And that's what I'd like for us to get, not only today, but through this entire sermon series. The point of the book is not, look at Daniel. The point of the book is not, look at how great Daniel was. The point of the book is, rather, look at how supremely great is the God of Daniel. And look at how supremely great he begins to reveal himself. This great God, how he begins to reveal himself and his coming kingdom to the very king who exiled Israel. In some way, dear friends, the book of Daniel is a missionary tract. In some way, the book of Daniel is like a missionary tract. God is revealing himself to pagan nations. 
And what does he reveal himself? What does he reveal about himself to these pagan nations, to the kings of these pagan nations? He reveals many things. But if we were to summarize it all in one word, he reveals his supremacy. He reveals his supremacy. In some way, dear friends, God reveals his greatness and how far superior he is to anything that the kings of Babylon and of the Medo-Persian empires have ever seen. And those revelations happen through events in Daniel's life, but they also happen through revelations about the future, about the unending, unfailing reign of his dominion that will be forever and ever and ever. His supremacy is the big theme that we see in the book of Daniel. Now, if you had a chance to read through the book of Daniel this past week, I want to give you a quick historical context uh, just to to make sure we understand where Daniel fits. Um, Israel was punished as a nation for her sin. Israel was punished as a nation for her sin. Her sin grew so high and so big that God expelled the nation of Israel from the land. Now, there are two exiles in the Old Testament. The first one was with the ten tribes, the first ten tribes, the northern tribes of the the nation of Israel. And they went roughly around 728. They were exiled into the land of Assyria. Now, hopefully, the hope was that the southern kingdom, Judah, the two tribes of the southern kingdom, would get the picture. They would get the lesson from the northern kingdom. And they would walk away from their sin and turn back to God. But about 150 years pass, and they fail to learn the lesson. So they too, the southern kingdom, also is taken into exile, kicked out of the land. This time, it's not into Assyria, as the other ten tribes This time, the southern kingdom is exiled into Babylon. And Daniel is wrapped up in that exile. The exile was a cold reminder that God takes sin seriously. Being thrown out of God's land was a remembrance, was very similar to the book of Genesis when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the land, out of the garden. In so many ways, the book of Daniel reminds us of the storyline of the entire Bible. As a matter of fact, it's amazing that even while punished and chastised, God has not left his people alone by themselves. God comes to the aid of his people even while in exile, even while in Babylon. And that's a big deal about the stories of Daniel. It's not simply what Daniel did, but what God did with Daniel and through Daniel. God comes to aid his people even while in exile. Even though Israel was in this foreign land away from God, far away from the promised land, God was still making a name for himself through the events in Daniel's life. 
That's why these miracles that God makes with Daniel don't bring the exile to a close right away. Nor does the exile prevent God from working wonders in a faraway land. But what is the hope for a people under the chastisement of God? Let me say that question again. What is the hope for a people who find themselves under the chastisement of God? The book of Daniel answers this question. And the answer is, the hope for a people under the chastisement of God is the supremacy of God. The supremacy of God. This is the title for the entire series this morning. And uh, as we begin to look at this uh, series, I want to make sure we understand roughly how this book uh, divides up, how, wh- how this supremacy uh, is manifested itself in this book. The supremacy of God manifests itself in the book of Daniel, first of all, through his sovereign control over the world and through his reign as a kingdom that he reigns over, confronts the kingdoms of the world. God's supremacy is manifested through his sovereign control over the world and through his reign as his kingdom confronts the kingdoms of the world and, in the end, will overtake them. That's how the supremacy of God is presented in the book of Daniel. But the idea of the kingdom of God, the idea of his reign, the idea of his supremacy is not just a religious language or a religious concept that we like to use in church. His supremacy, his kingdom, has deeply practical implications for our day-to-day life. The minute you walk out of this place, we're not just passive receivers of his sovereign rule over our lives. We're not just couch potatoes waiting to see what will happen. But rather, the book of Daniel tells us that we are active responders to his sovereign rule so that God's kingdom coming to earth refers to his reign, God's reign, over his people. It refers to those who respond to his reign with loving, joyful submission and, who will endure, and those who will endure to the end in the face of the opposition that the kingdoms of the earth will cause against the kingdom of God. So the supremacy of God is revealed through the reign of God over the world, but also through the reign of God over the people of God. This morning I want to look at this overview picture of the book of Daniel, the supremacy of God and of his kingdom. Because this is an overview sermon, we are not going to read the entire book of Daniel. But we're going to read through it. So keep your Bibles open. If you have a pew Bible... Um, please open it to page 769. That's the first page of the book of Daniel. We're going to go through this book and look through the big ideas and what's, what, it go, what it does. And the first thing we'll do is we're going to do a quick run through the book. And then we're going to come back to the beginning. And we're going to look at the two main themes that are being developed in this book. But before we do that, let's ask God to give us His grace that we may understand this book. O oh Lord, our sovereign King, Lord of heaven, 
We praise you that you have revealed yourself not only to Daniel and to the kings of Babylon and the kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. Lord, you revealed yourself to us. And this morning, we have your revelation. We pray that you would make this revelation to be understandable to us. We pray that you give us your spirit. May you give us your wisdom so we may understand what you want to communicate to us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So the first thing we're going to do is run through the entire book quickly. At a very basic level, if you had a chance to read this book this past week, you notice that the book is divided in two major parts. The part that you get and the part that you don't. Is that easy? The first six chapters are all the stories that we like. We get them. Our children know them. But then chapters 7 through 12 are all these visions about bizarre realities that don't make sense. At one point in the book, even Daniel, the great wise man, says, and I do not understand this vision. So, so what do we do with the book of Daniel? What we typically do is we go through the first six chapters, we get edified by them, and then we sort of close the book and move to the next one. This series, we're going to look at the entire book of, Sam, of Daniel in its entirety because the book of Daniel is a unit. We cannot just divide the book of Daniel in these two parts and just take the part we get and put aside the part we don't. One of the reasons why we must understand the book of Daniel as a unit is because all the visions that happen at the end of the book are really happening at the same time as the stories in the first six chapters are going on. If you read carefully, at the very beginning of some of these visions, they tell us when Daniel had them. And they, he had them sprinkled throughout the first six chapters. This means that we should read the whole book of Daniel together. That's what we aim to do in this series. But I'd like to make sure we understand not only this book together as a unit, but understand this book as a unit in the larger story of God's redemptive purpose, of God's story of creating us and saving us and redeeming us. What role does the book of Daniel have in the grand scheme of God's salvation story? Well, friends, in some ways, the book of Daniel reminds us of Genesis. And in some ways, the book of Daniel reminds us of Revelation. The themes that are happening in the book of Daniel remind us of the big themes of Genesis and Revelation. So in one way, we see in the book of Daniel a sketch of the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. You say, what, what do I mean? Where, what am I talking about? Well, chapter 1 in the book of Daniel is setting the stage. Chapter 1 is setting the stage. And the first test Daniel has to go through and has to pass is whether or not he will eat the forbidden food. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? In some way, the book of Daniel is giving a fresh start to the story of mankind. And then the last chapter of Daniel 
It's a picture of the great ending of human history. If you turn to chapter 12, we see a picture of the resurrection. Even though some of God's people will fall by the sword or be burned or be captured or be plundered, as chapter 11 tells us, when we get to chapter 12, we see a picture of the resurrection of the dead, of the wise and the righteous will shine the brightness like the brightness of the heavens. And all this sounds like the book of Revelation. In some way, the book of Daniel is a sketch of the entire Bible. And then the story of Daniel and his friends is really the story of God revealing himself, not just to Daniel, not just to the people of Israel, but to the pagan kings and their kingdoms. And this God reveals not just himself, but reveals his coming kingdom. You can't just get a revelation of God apart from getting a revelation of his kingdom as well. God and his kingdom go hand in hand. From chapter 2 to chapter 7, the focus will fall on the God to whom the eternal kingdom belongs. This kingdom makes its appearance among us in very humble ways. Remember chapter 2? A small rock follows, falls from a mountain unaided by a human hand. And this rock, small rock, comes towards a big statue. But the rock will destroy the giant image of a man made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron mixed with clay. And all the stories from chapters 2 to 7 reveal to us God's ability to overcome these kingdoms. Chapter 2 is a picture of the God who is able to beat the wisdom of the Babylonian Empire. Chapter 3 reveals to us the God, a picture of the God who is able to rescue from the fiery furnace. Chapter 4 is a picture of the God who is able to humble a proud king, the very king who humiliated Israel. God is able to humble him and bring him to repentance. Chapter 5 is a picture of the God who takes away the kingdom from a rebellious king. Chapter 6 is a, is a picture of the God who makes the lions fast for a night. Because Daniel, God's messenger, was in the den, in the lion's den. In chapter 7, we meet again with a four-part picture of the kingdoms of the world. Very much like in chapter 2, but now in chapter 7, this giant, the, pictures, the picture of the world, of the four kingdoms of the world, are not presented by a giant image, by a giant statue, but by four beasts. And the one who overcomes them is no longer a stone that falls off of a cliff of a mountain, but it's rather the Son of Man. These stories in Daniel are not simply about Daniel and his life, but they're about the supremacy of God in overcoming the kingdoms of the world and establishing His kingdom forever and ever. Now, if chapter, chapters through to seven, through to seven, uh, focus on the God to whom the kingdom belongs. In chapter 7, we see a switch. We see a different emphasis. The visions are no longer given to pagan kings. The visions are given to Daniel so he might encourage the people of God so they might be prepared for what's coming. So from chapter 7 on to the end of the book, the focus is not on 
the God to whom the kingdom belongs, but rather on the people to whom the kingdom is given. That's the second major theme of the book of Daniel. The people to whom the kingdom is given. First half is the God to whom the kingdom belongs. Second half is the people to whom the kingdom is given. These chapters contain visions given exclusively to the people of God. They contain prophetic words about the future and about the end times. They contain warnings about the future suffering so that the people of God may be ready and stand firm against the insults, against the threats of these kingdoms. Uh, Turn with me to chapter 11, verse 32. A, A big verse in this second half of the book of Daniel. Chapter 11, verse 32. The prophet speaks about someone who will come, who will exert power and and, and cause suffering to the people of God. He, this he, whoever he is, a figure of of the Antichrist, as we will see later in the New Testament. But he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. He will seduce with flattery those who Violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. God is warning his people that they will come when God's people might be thrown into the fiery furnace again. And he may not intervene as he did, not because he doesn't care or he doesn't want to, It's because somehow this is God's plan that God shows his supremacy even through the suffering of his people. And the book of Daniel is given to us to prepare us for those moments. But despite the warnings about future suffering, the entire book ends with beautiful promises given about the people of God's kingdom. Suffering and death do not have the last word. Look look with me to chapter 12, verse 1. The second, ver- the second part of the verse says the following, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Friends, what a promise for the people of God to be ready to face the pressures of the kingdoms of the world who will compel God's people to compromise and to violate the covenant. That's exactly what Daniel chose not to do. That is a promise given to those who know their God. The story of Israel in exile, dear friends, is a story of God's people in universal history. The story of Israel in exile is a story of God's people in universal history. And this is a point of the visions at the end of the book. We can look at Israel's story, especially at their exile, and realize that it is a picture of our spiritual state. Realize that apart from Christ... We are estranged from God. Because of our rebellion, we have been cast out of His presence. Just as Israel was cast out of the promised land, in Daniel's time, the news of a Savior who would 
pay for the sins of his people was still a future promise. Some of the prophets got it, but they did not see it clearly. They were awaiting to see how these promises would be fleshed out. But for us today, we look back at the way God fulfilled some of the promises of the Old Testament and provided a way for those who sinned against God, for those who rebelled against God, to have their penalty paid for so they might be restored to God. Friends, this is a great news of the gospel, that God in Christ paid for our sins so that we might be restored to Him, so that we might be brought back into a fellowship with Him, so that we might be no longer estranged from God. Oh, friend, if you're this morning visiting us, perhaps, or perhaps you've been in church for a long time, let me ask you, are you estranged from God? Does your life feel more like an exile away from God? apart from God, this morning? That's you this morning. The great news of the gospel is that by believing what Christ has done for you and for all of us, for all those who turn to Christ, by believing in His sacrifice, we may have life in His name and be restored to Him. If you'd like to know more about what this means, what this reconnection to God means, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Please come and talk to me. But for all of us who have turned to Christ, who have shown this this return to God, even publicly through the act of baptism, the picture of Israel in exile still has a significant application for us, even though our fellowship with God has been restored. The big application for us is that we still live in a foreign land. We still live in a foreign land. For us, Daniel's book is a great inspiration, a great instruction how to live as God's people, obedient to God, as God's people who see the sovereignty of God and yet live in Babylon. We love God. We have come back to God. The amazing part about Daniel is, how is it that we see such a young man who lived in a nation who so disobeyed God and yet this man so clings to the promises of God? Daniel loves God. Daniel sees the supremacy of God, and yet he lives in Babylon. And that's our story as God's children who have been returned to him, who have been brought into fellowship, yet we still live in a foreign land. The book of Daniel for us encourages us to persevere in faith, in hope, in love. For the kingdom that will never be destroyed does indeed belong to God. So that's, that's in a nutshell the book of Daniel, from the beginning to the end, from chapter 1 to chapter 12. Let's go back now and look at two themes that we've mentioned, the God to whom the kingdom belongs and the people to whom the kingdom is given. The God to whom the kingdom is, it belongs is the, is the supreme God, the supremacy of God. Throughout this book, God reveals himself um, to a few pagan kings, three of them, to Nebuchadnezzar, to Belshazzar, and to Darius. And listen how they describe God, or how Daniel describes God to them. Go back to chapter 2. Turn your scriptures to chapter 2, and we're going to go through a few verses in this book. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in chapter 2. He cannot remember the dream, nor can he interpret it, and yet he's troubled by it. 
So he orders the death of all the wise men, including Daniel, uh, of all the wise men in Babylon. But you know the story. Daniel finds a way to to get the dream and to interpret the dream. And he brings both the dream and the interpretation to the king. At the end of the hearing, here's how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Look to verse 47 in chapter 2. I think this is a king of the very nation who exiled Israel. Surely your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. The supremacy of God recognized by the king of the greatest empire of that time. Now move to chapter 3. When the same king asks three Jewish men to bow down before a golden image, Otherwise, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Notice the king's question to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, verse 15. Look at the very last sentence in, chapter, in verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar asks, Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What a great question. What a great question. And you know the rest of the story. I'm not going to repeat it for you. These men are thrown in the fire furnace. They're kept alive and intact. The king brings them out. And look at how the king praises God. And more so, in 29, not only does he praise God, but look at what he does. He gives a decree. Therefore, says King, king Nebuchadnezzar, I decree that the people of any nation or language, who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be cut into pieces, and their houses turned to piles of rubbles, for no other God can save in this way. Wow. Then move to chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, the same king, who had now two revelations about God, the same king fails to keep consistent in his views of God. So he becomes proud. And Daniel gives him another vision, or he gets another vision that Daniel interprets. But this king ignores the interpretation. So God humbles him. And listen, he lives like an animal. And then finally at the end of life, he repents, acknowledges God, and listen to how he praises God at the end of his life. Chapter 4, verse 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and he keeps on praising God. Then in chapter 5, the successor of Nebuchadnezzar made a feast and dishonored God, by bringing his vessels into his party. So God interrupts his party with a message written on a hand, on a wall by a hand. So the king brings Daniel to interpret the message. Daniel reminds the king of the lessons that his father Nebuchadnezzar learned about God. And listen to what Daniel says in chapter 5, verse 21. He, referring back to Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, 
his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the vessels from his temple brought to you, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. What did Belshazzar fail to see? The supremacy of God. Even though he heard about it from his father, and he has heard and known how hard of a lesson God has given his father to learn it. Belshazzar refused to see the supremacy of God. Then in chapter 6, Daniel is in the lion's den because he refused to alter his prayer patterns of praying not once, three times a day in his house with his windows open so he could pray to Jerusalem, towards Jerusalem. And you know how the story ends. God makes the lions fast that night. But what we don't remember is the theological lesson of that story. Look at chapter 6, verse 25. Chapter 6, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Friends, in some way, this is the Great Commission. In all the earth, King Darius gives a decree. And here's what he writes. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be, shall be to no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Oh, friend, do you hear what a great evangelistic decree this is? Not by Daniel. Daniel is not the biggest evangelist in this book. It's King Darius. The supremacy of God and of his kingdom. He is the living God in doing forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. And it's this red thread running through each of the six stories of Daniel that is echoed again in the last half of the book. Now, for most of us, listening to this theme of the supremacy of God this morning, you might say, I'm already convinced of this. I'm already convinced that God is supreme. We know that there is no other greater than God. Samuel, you're preaching to the choir. So how does this theme, this theme of the supremacy of God encourage us? How does this theme challenge us, Christians? Friends, the, book of, the, the fact that the book of Daniel happens during the time of the Babylonian exile is huge. This is neither no coincidence nor, no, nor small matter. It's huge. The fact that the supremacy of God is declared in the book of Daniel is huge. You say, why? Here's why. In the ancient times, when nations would fight against nations, what was at stake was not simply to show off who's got the greatest army. 
Who's the, bigger, who's the biggest nation? Who's the most powerful nation? What was at stake in wars in ancient times is whose gods of whose nations are the biggest. So when Israel is exiled, the point was not simply that Israel has low military power. That's not the point. The point was not about Israel. The point was about the gods of Israel. So for Israel to be exiled by the Babylonians, it was a clear picture, constant reminder, whose gods are the biggest? Whose gods are the greatest? Israel's or Babylon's? It's in exile that God decides to make a big name for himself through exiled Israel. And that's the irony of the book of Daniel. The God of an exiled people is acknowledged several times as the greatest and most supreme God, and that acknowledgement is given in decrees by the very kings of the empires who overcame him. That's the supremacy of God. Friend, the exile does not limit God to present himself as supreme. And even though through the exile, God is able to raise up praises from the mouths of pagan kings about his supremacy. Now, I know that you know that God is supreme. But do you know that God is supreme even in an exile? Can you see the supremacy of God in an exile? Can you see the supremacy of God in setting up Nebuchadnezzar as king over the very nation that exiled Israel? You may say, of course I can. I believe the Bible. It's in the Bible, I believe it. That's not exactly what I'm asking. Put yourself in the shoes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you're being asked just to barely bow your knee before the statue. And there's a warrant for your death if you don't. Can you see the supremacy of God in that exile? Can you see the supremacy of God when there's a death warrant for everyone who does not worship the gods of the kingdoms around us? Can you see the, de the, the supremacy of God when your life is in danger? Can you see the supremacy of God when you go through your exiles? And they may not be nearly as, as hard as the exile of Babylon, but you know your trials. You know what you're going through. If we would, would have an open mic and allow you to come and share what you're going through, we would have countless stories of various challenges that you're going through. Can you see the supremacy of God in those moments? The book of Daniel is written not by an armchair theologian who writes in a library a research paper about a theological treatise about the greatness of God. The book of Daniel writes about the supremacy of God as he's facing a fire, as he's facing the lion's den, that's the place from which Daniel writes about the supremacy of God. That's the kind of supremacy, that's the kind of picture we want to get of the supremacy of God. Can you see how this supremacy of God challenges your life, challenges your trials, challenges your reactions to your trials? 
In Daniel, we see the God to whom the kingdom belongs. That's the first picture, the supremacy of God. And throughout this series, friends, we will unpack different elements that make God supreme. His sovereignty will come up big time over and over again. His, other, his knowledge, his ability to know the future will come up over and over again. We'll look at all of these dimensions, but the big theme is the supremacy of God. But the second theme, and we'll close through this, is the people to whom the kingdom is given. One of the most powerful statements about God and his kingdom is also that this kingdom will be given to God's saints. In chapter 7, verse 18, it says that the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. The recipients of this eternal kingdom will not be all men of all nations. It will be only those people who belong to God, the saints of the Most High. But who are these people? Who are these people? Chapter 11, verse 32, which we read already, reminds us that it's the people who know their God. It's a people of the kingdom that indeed can look at Daniel as an example, not simply because Daniel lived a great life, but because Daniel had a great view of the supremacy of God. The people of God know their God. It was the supremacy of God that that Daniel and his friends to take God's word so seriously that they dared to refuse the king's menu. It was their view of the supremacy of God that made them willing to risk being thrown to the fire rather than bow their knees before the king's statue. It was their view of the supremacy of God that made Daniel not change his prayer patterns and his prayer disciplines even if this small act of devotion to God endangered his life. We often read the stories of Daniel and remember them as children's stories. But in fact, they are of such deadly seriousness about the problems facing adult believers today, facing the temptations to compromise, facing the temptations to give in to the values of the kingdoms of this world. These stories are not just children's stories. These stories are serious lessons, serious pictures of what it means for the people of God to know their God. It's not just learning a Sunday school lesson. It's about the lessons that you learn Monday through Saturday as you're being tempted, as you're being allured by the values of this world. That's the knowledge. And it's amazing that Daniel says that the, it is the people who know their God that will stand and will take action. Oh, friend, this is the people to whom the kingdom is given. Actually, the book of Daniel tells us that the final victory will not come without persecution and perseverance. So the book of Daniel encourages us to godliness in the face of evil. It encourages us to godliness in the face of suffering. What are the signs that we have an adequate view of the supremacy of God in one's life? I'm not asking you if you know how to say that you see the supremacy of God in your life. Everybody can recite those words easily. I'm talking how do you know that you have a high view of the supremacy of God in your life? Let me take some quick lessons from the book of, of Daniel. Attention to the Word of God. The attention you give to the Word of God and His instructions Our view of the supremacy of God is directly related to our view of his instructions. The second way is an ongoing conviction that God is in control and sovereign 
even while his people are going through suffering, trials, and even persecution. His sovereign control extends over every king and president of the nations of the world, but it also extends over the breath of every man and woman and child in this world. An ongoing conviction that God is in control and sovereign. A consistency in the simple spiritual disciplines such as prayer, confession of sin, fasting. A man who has a high view of God has a high regard for the spiritual disciplines that connect him with this high view of God, with this high God. A high view of the supremacy of God leads us to actions and choices that would rather endanger our lives than dishonor or disobey God. Corporately, there's a challenge for us. God could not make himself known through Israel during their time in their land because they chose to disobey God. So he excommunicates them from the land. And how amazing that it's from that place of chastisement, it's from that place of shame and humility, the God of heaven makes himself known in ways that surpass every evangelistic crusade in the entire Old Testament, including Jonah's trip to Nineveh. What does that mean for us as a church? We should not be afraid if we follow God's instructions to the point of confronting sin. We should not be afraid that people won't come to this church. We should not be afraid that God will fail to make a big name for himself if we go by his instructions and are not afraid of calling sin, sin, and gently and lovingly and carefully seeking to call people back to repentance. We should not be afraid of the glory of God. God can bring out his glory of exile. He can bring himself a big name and make himself known through an exiled people who are going through chastisement. Friends, God can honor himself more through our chastisement than through our compromise. What a great God we have. Towards the end of the book of Daniel, he inquires about the end of the exile. He says, Lord, when will this all become, come to an end? When will it come to an end? And what is the meaning of 70 weeks that Daniel wrote, read about in the prophecy of Jeremiah? And God says simply this, it's not time yet. It's going to be a while. It's going to be a long while, Daniel. You're going to go to sleep. It's going to be a long while. There's going to be suffering, but it's going to be a long while. And you say, why, God, if you're in control, why? Why can't we just get to the destination now? Why go through suffering? Why go to trials? And the answer is because of the supremacy of God. God knows better. I don't know why God determined that way, but God knows better in the supremacy of his ways. And all we can do is look at him and acknowledge him as a supreme God of heaven and know that whatever it will take, however long it will be, we will all awaken in the morning of the resurrection and the kingdom of our God will be given to his people forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning as we have heard of the way you revealed yourself to pagan kings and to your prophets. O oh Lord, we pray at the beginning of this series that you will work in our own hearts to see in fresh ways your supremacy. That despite what we're going through, 
despite how disappointed we might feel, we pray that your plans and your supremacy would encourage us, would strengthen us for the days ahead so that we might persevere, so that we might honor you through our lives, through our actions, through our confession to you and to the world. Lord, we pray that you would make a big name of yourself, a big name for yourself in our midst and through us, here in Austin and throughout the world. In the name of Christ, amen.